Welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Programme podcast. Here we're joined by experts, strategists and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy here at the IISS. And I'm Yuka Koshino, IISS Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy. We will be your hosts for this episode. Today, we're very excited to welcome Professor Kotani Tetsuo for the second time in our podcast and Dr. Len Kwok to discuss Japan's response towards expanding gray zone situations in the Indo-Pacific region across domains for military, economic, and information space. Professor Kotani Tetsuo is a professor at Meika University and senior fellow at the Japan Institute of International Affairs. His research focus is Japan's foreign security policy, the U.S.-Japan alliance, and the international relations and maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region. Dr. Len Kwok is Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and co-editor of the Asia-Pacific Regional Security Assessment. She is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and is regularly invited to lecture at the U.S. Department of State's Foreign Service Institute and the Australian War College. So thank you very much both for joining our episode today. Today we're going to do a deep dive into recent trends of Chinese grey zone activities in the Indo-Pacific region and how this activity is destabilizing the security of the region. For listeners who are not familiar with the concept of grey zone, this is a situation that is neither peacetime nor wartime contingency, so in the middle of the two. The concept emerged in the 2010s when China began its maritime assertiveness in the East China Sea and the South China Sea. For Japan, activities around the Senkaku Islands, which China calls the Daiyu Islands, are the primary concern with this grey zone activity. There are now obviously a large number of players in the grey zone space, in addition to other countries, including Russia and North Korea. These include organised crime, terrorism and intellectual property thieves, among others. So let's begin with a quick historical overview of Japan's perception of Chinese grey zone activities in the East China Sea. If I can start with you, please, Tetsuo. When did Japan begin to worry about Chinese grey zone activities in the region? And what are recent trends that you can see that are different from a a decade ago, for example? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me again. The term grey zone activities basically means China's coercive actions in the maritime domain to challenge neighboring states' rights, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. The 2010 Japan's National Defense Program guidelines defined the term as confrontations over territory, sovereignty, and economic interest not to escalate into wars. In September 2010, a Chinese fishing boat rammed into two Japanese Coast Guard ships in the territorial waters of the Senkaku Islands. The Japan Coast Guard arrested the Chinese skipper and Beijing harshly protested and even imposed export ban of rare earth metals. Since then, China increased the presence of law enforcement ships around the Senkaku Islands and after the transfer of ownership of the Senkaku Islands from a private citizen to the Japanese government in September 2012, China drastically increased its gray zone operations. Initially, China lacked capacity and capability, so Beijing integrated different maritime agencies to create new Coast Guard. Their ships are becoming larger and crews enhanced their skills. They now maintain presence near the Senkaku Islands on a daily basis. 
There's some good data from Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Chinese intrusions around the uh, Senkaku Islands. So I, I recommend those. And, and you can see, as you said, Tetsuo, the frequency of intrusion has really increased, particularly since uh, Xi Jinping took power. Shifting to the Chinese government's perspective, Lin, what are the o- overarching objectives, uh, do you think, behind China's deployment of grey zone activities in, in the Indo-Pacific more broadly? Thanks, Robert. Let me start off by saying that whilst the term grey zone is often used, there is little agreement on what it means and its precise definition. And I think we heard some of the lack of preciseness over the term. I don't want to get into definitional issues here, um, save to say that for me, the crux of this term is that it refers to competitive activities that remain below the threshold of an attack which would justify a conventional military response. Thus, as you pointed out earlier, Robert, it's grey in the sense of being between peace and war. That said, in a competitive environment such as that which we find ourselves in today, many activities could be considered grey zones. So I am not entirely sure how useful that term is. With that caveat in place, I think it's clear that China's overarching objective in deploying grey zone activities in the Indo-Pacific is to achieve strategic gains without recourse to war. It has done so most notably and with some distinction in the South China Sea, where gains have included establishing control over disputed beaches in the South China Sea by building and militarizing them, and in the case of beaches like Scarborough Shoal, a feature of the Philippines island of Luzon, by blocking access to them. China has also sought to assert control over the waters of the South China Sea by asserting economic rights in coastal states' exclusive economic zones, as well as objecting to lawful assertions of maritime rights and freedoms by the US and other neighbouring powers. Thank you for reminding us, Lynn, about the the difficulties of of defining this term. We don't want to get into definitions, but do you think defining the term better would help us to deal more effectively with the various threats that come from a grey zone activity? I'm not sure that we need to define the term better for that purpose. It might help analytically, but in terms of dealing with China's grey zone activities, I think we all understand it as China's use of non-military means for strategic gain. And so I guess to the extent that countries are thinking or should think about non-military means by which to respond to and proactively counter China's actions in the South China Sea, I think that would already be very helpful. One tool that China has also employed has been its use of legal tools to advance strategic objectives in the South China Sea. And I think that's also very important. We hear a lot about how it's approached the South China Sea Tribunal ruling um, in terms of condemning it as lacking in jurisdiction as well as wrong on substance. We've also seen China use domestic legislation to advance its strategic ends in the South China Sea, which I think is worth touching on because it's also increased in pace in recent years. So since 1999, China has imposed an annual fishing moratorium on fishing in the waters of parts of the South China Sea as well as the East China Sea. And it justifies this on the basis of an expressed desire to strengthen the protection of marine life. But by covering essentially the entirety of the South China Sea, which includes within it the exclusive economic zones of other coastal states, China claims extra jurisdictional control. In 2021, it passed two legislation, which also concerns the South China Sea. First, the Coast Guard law, which permits China's Coast Guard to use force to defend China's jurisdictional waters and empowering the Coast Guard to remove structures built by other countries on beaches 
Now, given Beijing's expansive interpretation of jurisdictional waters, a term which finds no mention in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, the Coast Guard law risks escalation at sea as well. Also in 2021, China revised um, its rather innocuous 1984 Maritime Traffic Safety Law, which requires foreign vessels to report their detailed information when entering the territorial sea of China. Now, there is no reporting requirement in uncrossed ships exercising innocent passage in the territorial sea, and that requirement falls foul of the duty of the coastal state not to hamper innocent passage. The long and short of it is that you know, these laws may all be seen as part of China's efforts to assert ever greater control over the waters of the South China Sea through non-military means, so through gray zone activities, even though they might not be operational, but, you know, legislational. Apart from the Philippines taking the initiative to bring its case against China in 2013, regional actors have been far less proactive and systematic in building legal capacity and deploying international law to strategic effect. And this is an area that regional actors can consider bolstering their efforts in. Things that would also offer guardrails to escalation amidst intensifying competition. A lot of your work focuses on ASEAN and, and the South China Sea. What impact has China's act, Grey Zone activity had uh, on regional dynamics in and around the, the South China Sea? I think there's no doubt that China's Grey Zone activities in the South China Sea has been immensely destabilizing for the region. We saw earlier this year the Philippines uh, Coast Guard accusing a Chinese Coast Guard ship of directing a military-grade laser at one of its ships supporting a naval mission to deliver food and supplies to troops on a vessel that the Philippines had intentionally grounded on Second Thomas Shoal in 1999 to protect its claims there. In August this year, a Chinese Coast Guard vessel fired a water cannon at a Philippine supply boat. Now, both these incidents sparked off diplomatic spats. It is conceivable that diplomatic spats might break out into more problematic tensions and even conflict. So last month, we saw Beijing install a barrier at Scarborough Shoal just off the Philippines island of Luzon to prevent Philippines fishermen from fishing in and around the contested feature. We had the Philippines Coast Guard posing as fishermen dismantle the barrier. There was no flare up then, but it is quite easy, as I mentioned earlier, to see such incidents escalating. But even beyond their destabilizing impacts for the region, such aggressive activities falling short of war are simply not in China's interests. If China's main concern is that the United States is seeking to contain it, picking fights with its neighbors is not just poor form, it's bad strategy. The Philippines under the Marcos administration has enhanced defense ties with the United States, offering the U.S. four additional facilities under their Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, or EDCA, with two facilities facing north towards Taiwan. So I think China's gray zone activities in the South China Sea have certainly not helped its cause. Tetsuo, close to Japan, what do you think the impact has been of China's gray zone activities in the, in the East China Sea? Over a decade, this gray zone coercion has been a main challenge for, for Japan's security policy. Japan, coupled with the United States, uh, can maintain the conventional military dominance in the East China Sea. But in, in gray zone, deterrence doesn't work. We have increased our defense capabilities. We have increased our law enforcement capabilities. Uh, we have uh, expanded the, the alliance cooperation. But uh, China is just stepping up its gray zone coercion uh, against the Senkaku Islands. Their activities are very much destabilizing. I think the key issue 
is the escalation control. Japan is trying to come up with uh, more flexible deterrent options whenever China uh, conducts coercion uh, against Japan so that we can send the right signal to China and discourage China from taking a further aggression. Thank you very much for sketching out the impact of the Chinese gray zone activities in both in the East China Sea and South China Sea. So let me dive deeper into Japan's responses to the, the gray zone tactics. So Kotani Sensei, you've mentioned that Japan's responding to the gray zone challenges has been a major issue for Japan's security and defense policy debates in Japan for the past decade, but we've also seen the release of the, the three strategic documents last December, which also highlighted the need for you know growing cooperation with the Coast Guard and, and also the Self-Defense Force and civil military cooperation was very much emphasized in that document as well. But Akotani-sensei, could you share us a little bit more about how Japan has responded so far to the gray zone tactics, both in military and non-military uh, means? Japan's primary response to the gray zone challenges is the enhancement of our law enforcement capabilities. Japan has expanded its investment into Japan Coast Guard, and Japan Coast Guard now has more modern ships than a decade ago, and also there is a special unit to defend the Senkaku Islands. And Japan Coast Guard has now a better relationship with the police agency and also the self-defense forces as well. They have enhanced intelligence sharing and communications, and they now train together on a regular basis. If a situation escalates, the self-defense forces can replace Japan Coast Guard and conduct maritime security operation for law enforcement under Japanese law. The procedure has been simplified a couple years ago, and also in wartime, the defense minister can command the commandant of Japan Coast Guard. And the command and control relationship between the two has been recently clarified. And by taking those measures, Japanese government has tried to make sure it can seamlessly respond to gray zone contingency. On the other hand, Japan seeks confidence building and also the crisis management with China. We now have director general level maritime consultation and also the Coast Guard to Coast Guard talks with China, plus a maritime and air communication mechanism between the self-defense forces and the PLA is now fully uh, operational. You also mentioned under the context of U.S.-Japan alliance, the U.S. and Japan has been enhancing their responses to the gray zone uh, situation, but you also mentioned that deterrence doesn't work and it has been quite challenging could you share us the conversation between U.S. and Japan on how to better respond to the situation and how do you find uh, these responses being actually effective to manage the situation? Initially, there was an understanding that U.S. had no role in gray zone challenges as it was a law enforcement issue. But over time, Tokyo and Washington have expanded cooperation so, for example, Washington now expresses its opposition to any measures to challenge Japanese administration of the Senkaku Islands, in addition to the emphasis of its treaty commitment to the defense of Japanese territory. Japan and the United States now share real-time intelligence and also the operational picture in the East China Sea. The United States is boosting its ISR capabilities 
for instance by the deployment of the MQ-9. And plus, U.S. Coast Guard is expanding its engagement with Japan Coast Guard while increasing its presence in the region. Finally, under the 2015 U.S.-Japan Defense Cooperation Guidelines, the two governments are preparing more flexible deterrent options to prevent uh, escalation. Thank you very much, Kotani-sensei. Could you maybe also explain about potential roles that um, other regional U.S. alliances might play, especially those partners that have recently developed closer relationship with Japan, for instance, Australia, might have in dealing with such a situation in the East China Sea? We are very much encouraged by the regional countries' willingness to cooperate with Japan to address the, the gray zone issues. Countries like Australia, uh, Canada, they are expressing their uh, support for Japan to enhance our response to the gray zone challenges. And sometimes they uh, send naval ships, aircraft, and the Coast Guard captors to the region. We just had a Coast Guard joint training among Japan, US, and the Philippines. The Philippines is facing a lot of gray zone coercion in the South China Sea. So we are willing to help the Philippines to enhance their capacity. And also we are trying to share the best practices among the three. And by doing so, I think we are sending right signal to China. And also we are inviting more regional countries to join to address the China's coercion in gray zone. Thank you very much, Kotani-sensei. Could you also maybe share us some of your perspectives on what are the key remaining challenges that you think the Japanese government will face in order to deal with the gray zone situation going forward? I think the key to manage the gray zone challenges is the escalation control. So far, Japan has been trying to respond proportionally to Chinese coercion. I think Japan should take a escalate to de-escalate approach to discourage further Chinese gray zone coercion. And the escalation could be vertical and also the horizontal. So for vertical escalation, Japan can deploy self-defense forces to conduct maritime security operation in the territorial waters of the Senkaku Islands when China conducts a massive coercion there. On average, China Coast Guard ships enter territorial waters of the Senkaku Islands three times every month, with four ships each time. But for instance, in June 2016, suddenly 15 China Coast Guard ships entered territorial waters with 300 Chinese fishing boats. At that time, Tokyo did not order the self-defense forces to conduct maritime security operation for fear of further escalation. But I think Japan should take uh, escalate to de-escalate approach when necessary. And for horizontal escalation, I think Japan should conduct transit through the Taiwan Strait or conduct a freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea by Japan's maritime self-defense forces in response to China's continued violation of Japanese territorial waters. China would not like it, but I think China has to respect it. 
And there's always a risk of so-called reactive assertiveness. China provokes first and justifies itself if a neighboring country overreacts. Nevertheless, whenever China provokes too much, Tokyo should have the determination to escalate, to de-escalate. And here, political resolve is tested. Let's shift our perspectives towards the future now by thinking about how these activities might evolve. We've been discussing throughout this podcast how Chinese tactics have been uh, escalating in, in the region. Lynn, you talked about the construction of military and other outposts in the South China Sea, for example. And so, Lynn, in terms of near to medium strategies, what potential grey zone activities do you think China could undertake? One specific grain zone activity that China could undertake would be building on the disputed Scarborough Shoal, which China has already been in control of for over a decade. In 2019, I wrote a piece in the National Interest highlighting that many officials I had met in Manila on a trip that included meetings with the defense and foreign ministers were worried about Beijing seizing the opportunity whilst China-friendly president was in place to build on Scarborough Shoal. This didn't happen during the Duterte administration, but as I mentioned earlier, last month we saw China install a floating barrier to block access to Scarborough Shoal. Although the Philippines managed to successfully remove the barrier, this is likely to be but the first in several Chinese salvos. My concern is that China could build on Scarborough Shoal without triggering the US-Philippines Mutual Defense Treaty. Because first, an international court or tribunal has not determined Scarborough Shoal to be Philippines territory, and the United States does not take a position on competing sovereignty claims. And second, Beijing could conceivably build on Scarborough Shoal without an armed attack on the Philippines, armed forces, public vessels, or aircraft, which would then trigger the MDT, since China is already in control of the future. For that reason, I think the Scarborough Shoal is a potential target for China. Tetsuo, you talked just now about how you think Japan should respond to de-escalate and so on. How do you think individual states and international institutions are adapting their strategies to ensure that they can cope with this grey zone competition from China? So far, the regional and even the extra-regional states now share concern about China's grey zone coercion. And they basically name and shame China's coercions at bilateral or multilateral meetings through diplomatic notes and via media coverage to demonstrate their resolve not to allow China's coercions. And think tank industry also contributes to the visualization of China's grazing activities. The Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative of CSIS plays a unique role in this regard. Capacity building and information sharing are now becoming more important. Quad, for example, has launched a capacity building and a maritime domain awareness project for the region. Japan and other countries will, will continue to help the regional countries to expand their capabilities for maritime domain awareness because that is the key to address the grey zone coercion. Lin, you, you spoke at the beginning about how difficult it is to define grey zone activity and, and I suppose that's one reason why there's almost no regulation in the grey zone. How do you think countries could use existing or new regional or international institutions to strengthen the rule of law to respond to grey zone threats? We are seeing, for instance, the Association for Southeast Asian Nations negotiate a code of conduct in the South China Sea, but even that is contested. There is talk about whether or not 
the code should prohibit various activities, including gray zone activities like building on features and militarizing features. But I think there is disagreement over whether or not the code should indeed regulate such activities, because I think China's argument is that countries should be allowed to conduct such activities, but simply, or rather, China should be allowed to conduct uh, such activities, but countries should merely trust China's activities in this respect. So trust that China is building up and fortifying these features in the South China Sea for purposes of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, etc., for, for benign rather than malign purposes. So thank you very much uh, for this very rich discussion. So now we're at the very end of the Japan Memo episode. So we always ask two questions to our guests. Kotani-sensei, first one, do you have a book recommendation for listeners who wish to understand Japan? You've already recommended in the past, but if, if you had others. Well, I was looking for a book written in English, but I, I couldn't. So let me recommend a, a book written by Sugio Takahashi of National Institute of Defense Studies. He just wrote uh, this book, Nihon de Gunji o Kataru Toyukoto. So perhaps I can translate to think about uh, military affairs in Japan. He argues the very important elements of Japan's security policies, including uh, gray zone. So this is kind of a book for the general uh, audience. I think this is really helpful to understand the overall Japan's strategic and defense thinking. Thank you, Kotani-sensei. What do you think people often get wrong about Japan? I'll start from you, Vin. Well, I don't know whether I would describe this as getting uh, wrong about Japan, but uh, Japan has contributed vastly to Southeast Asia's infrastructural development. But unfortunately, although we hear a lot about China's Belt and Road Initiative, and there's much fanfare over that, we hear rather less about Japan's infrastructural development of the region, even though based on the most recent data and statistics, uh, Japan's investments in that respect still surpasses China's. So I think it's important to note that Japan has an Indo-Pacific vision, which also dovetails with the desire of uh, regional countries to boost economic development and growth. Thank you very much, Lynn. Kotani-sensei, do you have any thoughts on what you feel like people often get wrong about Japan? Let me raise the issue of the maritime security operation I explained. I once had a chance to talk to a PLA Navy officer about it. Whenever Japan Coast Guard is overwhelmed by the situation, Japan self-defense forces would replace Japan Coast Guard to conduct law enforcement operations. I couldn't convince this PLA officer about the necessity of it. He said, if it's the naval ships, it's black, it's not gray. So for China, it's black or white, although they are creating the gray zone challenges. Also, I had a chance to talk to a very senior officer in the U.S. military about it, but he didn't know it. This uh, maritime security operation by self-defense forces is a critical tool for the escalation control. Uh, but even between U.S. and Japan, there was a lack of uh, mutual understanding of it. So, so I think uh, we need to let the, the regional countries know why Japan has this maritime security operation, which is very unique from an international perspective. 
but this is a tool for escalation control, not uh, provocation. So I'd like to let the audience know this fact. Thank you very much, Teto Sensei and Lynn. Thank you for a very rich discussion. We covered a lot of ground in this podcast. And thanks to all our listeners as well for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, we urge you to subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. More insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Programme and by the IISS more broadly on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are actively sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find Robert at, at Robert Allen Ward and me at, at Yuka Kushino and Kotani Sensei at, at Tetsuo Kotani and Lin at, at Lin Bok. So thanks again and see you next time. <laughs>